I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to read some verses from the teaching of Jesus, which contains a number of statements that are very hard to understand. Indeed, at first it appears contradictory. And yet, if this passage, which, which I'm about to read, is, is a stepping stone into our lives as disciples, if we stumble at this point, we're going to be confused all the way through. So I want to tackle this today, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us insight to launch you into a whole new, fresh lifestyle of following Jesus. Luke 9, 23 to 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray. Father, we ask for the energy, the power, the inspiration, the revelation of your Holy Spirit, not just to hear and understand but that this word would penetrate our hearts and shape us from the inside out. Let today be the first day of a whole new life of victory with Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On the 17th of July, just a few days from now, the world will be celebrating, at least those who remember, an event that took place 1,800 and 38 years ago in what is now modern Tunisia, AD 100, 12 believers willingly lost their lives rather than compromise to offer a simple sacrifice in honor of the Roman emperor. The man who presided over those affairs, a, a, a good man, a right man, the Roman procurator, Saturninus, called these believers together and said, don't be crazy, don't be so insane. All you have to do is swear by the genius of the emperor. All you have to do is offer the simple sacrifice and acknowledge that you are loyal to Caesar and everything will be all right. Remember, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's no problem. But give to God what belongs to God alone. After the death of Julius Caesar, posthumously, Caesar was given divine honors. And so there began the cult of the Roman emperor. For Christians to say that Jesus is Lord, it was a political statement, a revolutionary statement. And they didn't understand how we as believers could hold Christ is Lord, but at the same time subject ourselves to 
the earthly powers, to the point at least at which those earthly powers did not command us to go against our conscience. In today's society, we're very close to the same thing, maybe not as dramatically. And so Saturninus said, I give, you, I give you guys 30 days to think about it. And the leader Sparatus said, in matters so simple as who is Lord, we don't need 30 days to figure that out. And so he, one by one, questioned them and went particularly to, to the two women that I'm going to quote, Vestia and Secunda, and he said to Vestia, Vestia, do you renounce this? She said, I am a Christian. Full stop. To Secunda, she said, I wish to be what I am. I'm a Christian. I want to be who I am. And so as a result of that, death sentence was pronounced and carried out immediately. And the Christians gave thanks to God. So strong was their identity in Christ that they were willing and prepared to love not their lives unto death. Here at KT, we have an invitation which we extend to everybody. It's a fourfold invitation. We say, come, come, come and discover Christ. That's what we're about. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ. It's all about him. Can I have an amen in the house? All right. Then we say, by the way, having discovered who Christ is, we want you to be yourself. And we are very open to this. Kensington Temple, down through the years, has been home to many, many eccentric people, uh, including the one that you see before you today. Uh, we, we love the individuality, the particular thumbprint, fingerprint of your identity as to who you are, whom God made you to be. With all your gifts and talents and background and everything that is you, we value and we want you to be yourself. We also want you to do this in a connected way. In other words, it's not just being yourself in an individualistic way. It is bringing your uniqueness into the community so that together we become a very special and particular community of God's people. Have you wondered why you should be a member of Kensington Temple and not of HTB, for example? Or why people would be called by God to be members of HTB and not Kensington Temple? What is this? Is it just like, you know, the supermarket of modern day spiritual consumerism? Hey, I go to Tesco's. Ooh, I go to Sainsbury's. No, Waitrose is for me. Oh, I don't worry about all that. I just go to plain old little. This is not a consumerism. It's a deliberate act on God's part to stamp upon Christian communities a particular manifestation of who he is which is made up of all the people who are called to be here. Get connected. And in that connection, we invite you to grow as a disciple. I want to talk to you today about being yourself. I want to encourage you to be who you are, your authentic self, your unique self, the individual that is you 
and bring that uniqueness into the community in relationship with others to be connected in this church community, which then becomes unique and special. Now, in today's culture, we are told to be ourselves. Be yourself. Find out who you want to be, what makes you happy, and then be that person and express yourself outwardly in any way you so choose, especially without the traditional restrictions or prejudices from traditional morality and indeed at the root of that Christian morality. All that sounds very, very good, liberal and tolerant. But if you want to uphold biblical morality, biblical beliefs and biblical standards, especially on such matters as sexuality, gender, marriage and family and so forth, you will soon find out just how intolerant our society can be. This pressure is not new, the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of our current society. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word world is the word age, and the Bible reminds us that this present evil age is dominated by the powers of darkness who very often rules through ideas and notions and beliefs which are based on lies and deception. The word being conformed was translated by a then modern translator, Weymouth, quite a long time ago now, way back last century. But his translation of this part was very fresh. He said, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. That's why we must be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And nowhere is this more relevant than we come to the concept of the self. Be yourself. But what is the self? What self are you supposed to be? When I was a teenager, I came to Britain at the age of 16 and uh, obviously I was a teenager and lived in digs and accommodation and uh, I was a student here, student at the Royal Valley School and would meet with other people. We were, we were borderline hippies, far too disciplined to go the full way because we had to be at class in the morning, but we were borderline I wonder if the DSM-5, the Statistical Manual on Mental Classification, one day will include borderline hippie as one of their personality disorders. Anyway, we were there, and I remember night after night, we would talk and discuss, particularly in the hours after midnight, where free discussion kind of really comes out, and I can just remember sleepy eyes in the early hours of the morning, say, well, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? Now, you might be asking that last question, particularly this morning, but let me rescue you, because 
as humorous as that is, and we understand the teenage angst and identity crisis, but it seems to me that the whole of society is going through identity crises. And uh, the philosophers over the years have their own attempts at defining this. Plato, one of the fathers of ancient Greek philosophy, said, the self is a, an immortal soul that transcends the physical. It sounds good, but it's not quite there yet. David Hume, a British philosopher many, many centuries later, said, the self is nothing more than a bundle of perceptions. So I'm not here. I'm just a bundle of perceptions. Daniel D Dennett, who is a, an American cognitive scientist, atheist and secularist, is one of the infamous four horsemen of the new atheism. He says this, and check this out for atheistic positivity. The self is merely a center of negative gravity. I've actually met people like that, but I, I don't quite know what Daniel Dennett means. But let the psychologist come to the rescue. One modern psychologist says, I've worked it all out. The self is a system of social, psychological, neural, and molecular mechanisms. <laughs> Do you understand that? No. Does it matter? Probably not. Because when we come to the Bible, we have a simple, direct, authoritative, far-reaching understanding of who you are. You are an amazing being created in the image of God. How important it is for us to get our information and our understanding of who we are, not just from an external source, but from God himself. One of the things that myself, Jean-Samuel, Raphael, Geoffrey and others have discovered as we've gone not quite the length and breadth of Brazil, but it seems so, interviewing this generation of millennial people, people who are in the Y generation. And uh, when it comes to talking about the self, they say, well, I look inside myself to find out who I am. And that sounds important. Self-reflection is important. But you know, when you look in yourself to find out about yourself, it is only your opinion. And it is subjective. It depends on your feelings. It depends on all kinds of changing situations and circumstances. We cannot build our concept of self by such a subjective thing. We need something from the outside, someone from the outside, to tell us and to bring us into that understanding. And who better than God who created us and says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. All your works, including me, my soul knows it very well. Now, right there is a problem because many of us, even as believers, who ought to have a greater sense of our identity in Christ, still don't know how fearful and wonderful we are. We don't know. Many self-image problems come from not knowing who you are. Psalmist continues, 
Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Then Ivy puts it this way, you formed my inmost being. I don't think we would argue with this. The, the, the inner part of ourselves, the deepest part of who we are, our inmost being, is what carries our identity. But God says he formed you to be the person he created you to be. The you that is you and nobody but you that's who you are. And if that's the case, God made us and given us our identity. Why, why would he say, why would Jesus say, you want it, you've got to lose it. As soon as you recognize who you are, die. Kill it. Get rid of it. Very interesting. And a little bit confusing until we dig a little deeper. Here, Jesus is talking about two strong desires, two sets of desires. And these desires correlate with who you are, arise out of who you are, and in some way define who you are. First of all, there is the desire for self. Did you, did you recall that when, when I read? Whoever would save his life, his soul, himself, Whoever would save his life. In other words, the word would, it sounds very weak in the English language, but in the original language, it is powerful. It is a word for passion, a desire, a strong desire, an overriding desire, a desire that drives you forward and is the passion and purpose of your life, the whole of your life. That's what you live for. That's your passion. And for most of us, in fact, all of us, if the truth were told, our first passion in coming into this world is ourselves. We love our own life. We passion, have a passion for pursuing our interests, our self-interests, the things that we want, the things that we think will make life work, and the things that appear attractive to us. And this is what we run after. This is what we have a passion for. But something happened. God came into our lives. Do you remember last Sunday, linking with what was taught last Sunday by Dr. Joel Gregory? Remember he spoke on the spiritual DNA test. Remember that? Spiritual DNA. Come closer, come closer. Spiritual DNA. I watched it. It was amazing. And he explained that what happens is that when you come to Christ, it's not a new leaf, but a new life. There is a nature change. You are changed from the inside. And this new nature, the new person, the Bible calls it the new man, the new person, the new creation in Christ has passions. But the passion of this born-again person, this new nature, the passion is for Christ. 
It is an overriding passion. It's a passion that if you know how to release, it will take you further and further forward into the kingdom of God, deeper and deeper in involvement with God and in spiritual things and closer and closer to the full and final reward that comes in terms of the satisfaction that is found in Christ. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you would come after me, quite weak in the translation, but he says, if you desire, I mean really desire, if you want what I have, if you've seen the life that I have, the life that I can bring, the abundant life, if you want it and you want to pursue it with all of your heart, here's how you get it. You kill those old desires of the old life. That's the self that has to die daily. Amen and amen. amen. Amazing. But unfortunately, today, we have a kind of confusion as far as this is concerned. I don't know if you can remember where this quote comes from. I am the master of my own soul, the captain of my own soul. Uh, let me just go to the quote. I won't read it all. It is a poem by William Ernest Henley, penned in 1875. Henley lived until 1903. I'll tell you about the circumstances of his life. And the whole of the poem is talking about his struggle and his self-belief that his own soul is unconquerable. That's what the word invictus means. It is a Latin word meaning unconquered. And all that I've gone through, nobody can conquer me. And the last stanza says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, obviously, in a moment, I'm going to show you how false this whole poem is when you compare it with who you are in Christ. However, before I go there, I've got to actually make the point that there have been people who have gained a lot of positive stuff from this. I don't know if you recall that time way, way back on our television screens, February the 11th, 1990, when we saw for the first time live footage of Nelson Mandela because of reporting restrictions. All we could see in the previous 25 years was a very old photograph of a man whom they deemed to be a terrorist. Anybody remember those days? Very few will admit that, but that's what the British press, the British media were doing. And so when the time came for Mandela to be freed, we glued our eyes to see what is happening now to this full-blown terrorist and instead of a terrorist, there walked out a man. A statesman. A man who despite 27 years of isolation, imprisonment on Robben Island and other places, 27 years of suffering, 27 years of misunderstanding, he chose to walk out of prison a man who was prepared to forgive the very people who did that to him and so became the father of the new South Africa. 
And his testimony was, it was this poem that helped him through. He would not allow anybody or anything, success, failure, opposition, or even imprisonment and death to deflect him and to destroy him. And so I accept that's positive. Also, if you think of Prince Harry in the Invictus Games, you know that a number of years ago, Prince Harry was in the United States of America witnessing the Warrior Games, which was a similar uh, uh, sporting competition. And he said, I'm going to bring it back to Britain. And he named it the Invictus Games. And in March 2014, his inaugural speech, he says, these games are here to demonstrate the power of sport, to inspire recovery, support rehabilitation, and to demonstrate life beyond disability. So many people have benefited from the Invictus Games, and I guess we've all benefited from Nelson Mandela and what he did. Now, the original story of uh, um, William Ernest Henley was that at the age of 12, he contracted tuberculosis of the bone. And very early on, his leg was amputated, left leg below the, below the knee, was plagued with manifestations of this illness, spending many, many times, long times in hospital, and finally in 1903 succumbed to that condition. But one time in hospital, he refused to be beaten by this disease. And he wrote that poem as a defiance against all the circumstances and ill health of his life. And so I'm very sympathetic. However, the poem falls infinitely short of what you and I have. Because we know we are not masters of our own destiny or captains of our soul. Jesus Christ is Lord. And confessing him as Lord defines who we really are. Yes, give him a big praise. And so this poem can be twisted. I don't need God. I can do it myself. And this character, this self-reliance is deeply embedded in the fallen human being. It's only the new birth that causes us to transfer our trust from ourselves to Christ and in doing that, discover who we are and move in the direction of human dignity that no humanist could ever discover. No psychologist could ever produce because if the God who made you shows you who you are, only when you enter into that identity do you find your dignity as a human being. Amen and amen. amen. Now, of course, we lost it all. Image of God being destroyed through the fall and therefore God in saving us is recreating us and restoring that image and he is remaking us into the person he had in mind when he made us in the first place. So the old you is not you anymore. The old you is gone forever and we repudiate it every day of our lives and we embrace the new you because the new you is the true you. So we have this battle of desires, this battle for authenticity. And it's very simple. Jesus says, if you want who I have, what, who I am and what I have for you, just put to death, crucify, repudiate, deny, 
turn your back on who you were before you knew me and embrace everything, put all your eggs in this one basket, who you are in me. So the you that is you is who you are in Christ. And that's where all the fruit comes. Now, desire usually is, which is another word for motivation, usually is a, a desire to move in a direction because you believe that that direction will bring you satisfaction and reward. And it's quite remarkable, really, because modern science has shown us that there is a brain chemical, a biological chemical by the no name of dopamine, which actually is misrepresented in common thought and in, often in the media and in the press as being the pleasure drug. Actually, it's far, far more than that. Biochemists, neurologists tell us that dopamine is a biological drug that is produced for a purpose to motivate you to go in the direction where you believe you're going to receive a reward. It's a motivation thing. And when we say to God, I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to embrace who I really am in Christ, you better know that that is where the blessing lies. Two desires. And these desires are very strong. You know, in the language that is translated in the Bible here, the New Testament is written, there were, there were two words for desire. I'll give them to you. You don't really need to remember them, but I'll give them to you. One word, bulamai, bulamai, who am I? Bulamai, 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 okay? Bulamai is the desire, okay, I, I, I want to do this because I have to do it. I really don't want to, but I have to. I'm going to do it reluctantly. Like, you know, I don't want to join a cell, but I will do it, you know, because I have to. You know. I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to do it because it's easier to do it than to face my cell leader. Ah, I'll do it. Bulamai, it's half, it's weak, and it's not real. And the other desire, fellow, this desire is, wow, that's fantastic. That's what I want. That answers my deepest need. That answers my deepest longing. I am passionately committed to that course of action because I know it is amazing and it's going to bring blessing and it's going to fulfill the deepest longings of my life. Now, the battle of those desires. And uh, the Bible speaks of this very often as the, the old self, the old man, or, or the flesh, as opposed to the new man and the spirit. And so what this really means is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, because that belongs to the past, it belongs to the fruitless way of living, and it might bring temporary, superficial satisfaction. It might seem appealing for the moment, but later on we'll be so glad, so glad that we stopped it because look what we have now. That's what it's all about. Let me take you to a great Old Testament example of somebody about 1,700 years before Jesus came to this earth and his name is Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born. By the way, all that I'm talking about today takes faith. All right? That's what your faith is for, to pursue the one who is invisible. By faith, 
Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict, but by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Just let me read again just the verbs, strong verbs. He refused, he chose, he considered, he looked for, he was not afraid, and he endured. Wow, this is so real to us today. And the rewards of this world versus the rewards of the spiritual life in the age to come are stark and marked. The one is physical, the other is spiritual. The one is sensual, the other is invisible. The one is about instant gratification and the other is about delayed gratification. The one provides temporary pleasure, the other eternal. The one provides superficial pleasure, the other something that is deep and lasting. Instant gratification, the fleeting pleasures of sin. I thought about this, I thought, well, what do they have to struggle with in ancient times? They don't have internet, they don't have social media, they don't have the kind of sugary foods that we're forced to eat every day. In ancient times, there were many means of instant gratification, particularly for a man like Moses. He was deemed to be prince of Egypt. He had all the wealth, all the influence. Some of those things are very gratifying and provide instant gratification. There were a whole range of potions and drugs. Don't just think that the drugs of today was necessarily a problem for today. Oh, they had all the stimulants, all the sexual revelries, all the sex slaves they could wish for, and many, many other things, they had the alcohol, all that stuff. But having said that, I don't believe that the earth has seen a generation like this one, in which instant gratification is, on, is available at every particular level. And our dopamine is artificially released by these external means of dopamine release. I've mentioned sugary foods. We can talk about a whole lot of other things. The drugs and alcohol of today, and many people self-medicate. They feel a bit lonely, feel a bit lonely, feel a bit down. So they take and have a drink and think it's okay. Christians can drink. Jesus turned water into wine. And there are dopamine releases. Then there are others, very strong, very powerful. Simon Sinek, who ministers to it, he's not a minister, but he, he speaks to the millennial generation. He's a, a, a public speaker and a, an author and motivational speaker. He's also a management consultant and consults with uh, many companies. 
and uh, about the millennial generation. And he goes in and speaks to these young people. And he says, he is amazed how many times he sits with them and says, oh, you know, I've been in this organization. Now I'm moving on. I'm moving on. How long have you been here? Six months. You're moving on? Yes. Why? I haven't been able to make my mark here. Instant gratification. Simon Sinek says, listen, guys, you've got to know this. Some things come instantly and cheaply, but they are the things that aren't worth very much in the end. But there are certain things in life that require time and effort before you get there. One is relationships. The relationships that are worthwhile, they take time and energy and effort and a whole lot of waiting before the relationship matures to a point of maybe we could say something approaching to mutual satisfaction. Also job satisfaction, your career path, your career plan. You know, the days of the uh, internet bubble have burst and very few things are going to give you instant success. And if they do, they very often don't bring gratification, they don't bring satisfaction. Your pathway in life, your job Satisfaction takes time, work, energy, effort before you get to the reward. And that's where the dopamine is a godly thing and a good thing because it motivates you. When you set your life in a course of a good direction, anticipating a reward, your dopamine levels rise to the point where you have energy and passion to pursue that. But if you shortcut it and go for quick, high levels of dopamine in stimulation, it all goes wrong. You know, one of the things that is shocking about social media is that under certain circumstances, much more frequently than we would want to admit, social media likes and followers and all that kind of stuff releases levels of dopamine in the brain that gives you a high as strong as cocaine. Did you know that? Well, I don't know about cocaine. I just know what I read. All right. <laughs> Nobody was going to fall into that trap. <laughs> and also, PMO will bring to you a dopamine shot which is as strong as heroin. So you say, we've heard of heroin, what's PMO? There are children in the house, so let me spell it out in a way that you can work it out without us saying anything. P is what you can access on so many websites to give you a cheap thrill. You got it? Say, uh-huh. M is what happens, both men and women, when they watch such stuff. O is the climactic result. PMO, all right, so you can see why I abbreviated it. And there is a move today called a no-fap move. Now, don't be shocked. That is internet slang, and there's one or two people who are up to date on internet slang but I'll use it. It is refusing PMO. And I heard a, 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 a moving and tragic, well not tragic, but a moving story of one young man who would speak in his late 20s, who would speak, I would say, for almost every young man and young woman 
of the millennial generation born into this internet revolution where anything that you desire and it will bring you a quick thrill is available at the flick of a switch or the click on the internet. He said from 14 years of age, every day he was engaged in PMO, every day for 14 years, from age 14, until he realized what this was doing to him. And he's part, not a religious person, and he's part of this no-fapping movement which says, we are going to get to grips with this because we don't like what it's doing to our relationships. We don't like what it's doing to our sex drive. We don't like what it's doing to our health. And here's what is, what, what is happening. I'm not going to go into detail because it's beyond my time limit. And also, I'm not an expert, but I have researched this carefully. Here's what happens. When you have a dopamine high through this external stimulation, the body is filled with dopamine and the brain says, my goodness me, too much dopamine. So it shuts down dopamine receptors. So you go from a dopamine high to a low dopamine state. And that brings on depression, lethargy, anxiety, social anxiety, many, many other things. And because the brain seeks equilibrium, it then tries to bring into balance an inverse proportional relationship, low dopamine, high prolactin. Prolactin is that chemical which actually brings you to a state of apathetic contentment. My life's a mess. I'm stuck in this mess. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it, but I can't do anything about it. And for men, this is going to frighten you. Low dopamine means low testosterone, which means you can go to the gym and not find much muscle coming out. <laughs> and I won't, I won't talk about the rest. And so out of this come a whole range of different mental, psychological, physical conditions. And many women of the world are saying, enough's enough. We're going to delay our gratification. And it's amazing now the world is preaching about this. It's time we're not only caught up but got ahead and got back to the words of Jesus. says, if you want to save your life, lose it. If you want gratification, delay it. Do the stuff that will bring long-term rewards, not the fleeting pleasures of sin. Can we have an amen in the house of God? So I'm thinking of making a lot of money by designing a millennial t-shirt. And I think it will sell like hotcakes. And here it is. I'll try it out. You can be my market research today. On the front of this t-shirt it says, wow me, exclamation mark. Thrill me, exclamation mark. Fill me, exclamation mark. And turn your back. Release my dopamine now. <laughs> That's the spirit of the age. And actually, it, 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 it touches all of us because I've spoken about such things as sugary foods. I've spoken about all kinds of things. And you might just think I'm just having a go at all the uh, lifestyle of today. But we're all part of this because there's so many things that we do shortcut to get a cheap result. Everything. Studying the Bible. Prayer fellowship, so many things. And we just have got to get that dopamine to work for us and say, I am going to put all my trust in Christ and it may hurt now. Even the reproach of Christ is better than all the riches. If I gain the whole world and lose this new self of mine, life is not 
worth it. So we say, Jesus, we now understand. The rewards of discipleship require time, discipline, and sacrifice. We do that for earthly rewards. I'm, I admire young people who are competing in athletics or in sports or in other forms of sacrifice in, in business and industry, studying hard at medical school, doing all kinds of things. As they say, no pain, no gain. I am going to go through tough life now, discipline myself now, do the stuff I don't feel like doing because I'm going to achieve something that has a greater reward. And when we apply that to daily life in lots of dimensions, it makes sense. But how much more does it make sense in saying, God, you've given me everything and giving me Christ. My old person is gone and that doesn't bring any satisfaction, but I'm going to embrace who I am in Christ. And so when Kensington Temple invites you to be yourself, it's be yourself in Christ, for that's the only place where you will find lasting satisfaction, even if it means losing your very life. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We consider him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And he says, you want it? You want it? Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for helping us understand that the things that very often appear harsh. You call us to do, to not do, to put to death this, to refuse that. It seems that all the pleasures of life, you say it's sinful, and yet we know that's part of serpent thinking, painting you to be a withholder and not a rewarder. But by faith, we know that you are, that you exist. By faith, we know that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, grant us a motivation to release the passions of the new life, passion for Christ, passion for the kingdom, passion for the service of Jesus. And this is the principal priority of our life because we know that the rewards are worth it all, both in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.